Hey, we thought it would only be appropriate this morning that we would invite a grandparent to come and preach as we continue our simple series. So we have Rod Irvine coming to preach today. Rod is part of Gateway, has been part of Gateway for the last 10 or so years. Uh, Before that was a pastor down in Sydney. And uh, it's great to have you here, Rod. You've shared before. It's great to have you come and share with us. Why don't you make Rod very welcome this morning. Well, thank you, Andrew. And I want to talk today about grandparenting. It's simple, not easy, but one simple idea I hope that will help to make us godly grandparents. But before I start, I want to give this old Bible to Andrew and ask him if he would start a process where it gets passed right around the room, up and down the rows, just as long as I'm talking. And if somebody can give it back to me at the end, I'll connect it all up. But if you've got to get get over a row and walk across a row to give it to the next person, please do. If it gets right around the room, just keep it on going again. And uh, I hope I will connect it all up at the end. When Jesus talked about something happening suddenly... He used this phrase that it would come like a thief in the night. Well, you might be here saying, I'm not a grandparent. This is probably not for me. But let me just say to you that grandparenting can come like a stork in the night. It can come unexpectedly. And I want to give you a story about that. I want to take you back 16 years to the day of 9-11. You know, when the planes flew into the Twin Towers and everybody is sitting there, it was a Wednesday morning where I was anyway, watching these planes smash into the towers and we knew that something of world significance was happening. And it was at the start of a very, very busy week for me. I'd already had a busy week, I was the minister of a uh, relatively large church, not as big as this one, but a large church. Uh, We had two staff days that were going to be on the Wednesday and the Thursday. Uh, So I had to go off and do a a lot of work for those. I'd prepared the services for the weekend. I'd prepared my sermon for the weekend. And this is dominating, this uh, 911 is dominating all our thinking. And I went off on that particular day thinking, I've got the services done, but I've got a very busy day on Friday, another busy day on Saturday, but maybe I should change stuff. Maybe this is, this is world-shattering. I should be bringing the word of God to my congregation on this day where the world is changing. But I had no time. Didn't have any time at all. I, you know, I just, was, I just had a full time. But, and I, just as I went through the day, it just kept coming to me. You, this, is, this is not good. You shouldn't just be business as usual. And finally, about 4.30 in the afternoon, I got a phone call from a guy called Peter. Uh, He was not on the staff, but he was on the general creative team and a very creative guy. And he said, Rod, if you want to do something new for the services on the weekend, uh, Julianne, who was his wife, and I will help you. And they had a group of people that were creative. And I thought, well, maybe, maybe if they're on board, maybe we can do something different. So I finished all the stuff at the staff day. uh, And about nine o'clock that night, I went up to Peter's place and we spent hours 
working out things that we could do for the service on Sunday and I staggered into bed well after midnight and I was very tired because I am a morning person, not an evening person. So I was really tired. And the next day, I said to Helen, who had the morning off, would you get together some sermon stuff for me, some ideas, some illustrations and that. So she did that. But to make it worse, the pressure is coming on me because our youngest son was flying off to China that day. I mean, he's flying off the day after 911. He's 17 years old and he's flying to China to model skateboard wear. And I'm thinking, this is crazy. The whole world is not getting on planes. I mean, Rambo, Sylvester Stallone wasn't getting on a plane that day. And my 17-year-old boy's going to China. <clears throat> but So Helen took him up to the airport. Then I did my second staff day. 4.30 in the afternoon, she rings me and tells me that she has a terrible problem with her shoulder. She's in agony. Can I take her to the doctor? Can I come and get her? So I did that. I'm still trying to think about the sermon on the weekend. Uh, after tea that night, 7.30, I thought, I've just got a little window of time. I can start writing my sermon tonight. But by 9 o'clock, I was exhausted. I was a zombie. I was catatonic. My eyeballs wouldn't stay open. I just thought, I've just got to go to bed. I need sleep. Somewhere I'm going to have to do this tomorrow, but I don't know where, but I can't do it now. So I got into bed, and at 9.30, the phone rings. Ring, ring, ring. And I thought, this can't be happening. Uh, And it's another one of my sons. Ringing from Sydney. I'm in Wollongong. Dad, can I come and see you? What, now? He said, yeah, I mean, but it'll take an hour and a quarter for you to get here. Yeah, I'll be down about quarter to 11. He wanted to bring his, uh, his girlfriend with him. And I'm thinking, gee, this is significant. Maybe they're going to tell me they're, in, they're engaged. I'd better get up and sort of see him. So I staggered out of bed, you know, and, and did some more work on the sermon. But I was like, a, you know, I was just like a zombie. <laughs> he gets there at quarter to uh, 11. They sit down on the couch Uh, in front of us, Helen was there and uh, the first thing they say is mum and dad, we're going to have a baby I'm thinking, this this cannot be happening (laughs) this this just can't be happening and Helen was shocked, she just said tell me you are joking (laughs) but it was no joke and so we talked to them uh, for three quarters of an hour what was more, they wanted to get married in six weeks time they wanted me to marry them in the church it was going to be the middle of a large financial campaign Uh, and so at about half past 11 they left, I thought Helen will want to talk about this but I can't talk, I've got to go to bed I've just got to go to bed Uh, so I went to bed half past 11, quarter to 12 the phone rings again, it's my daughter she doesn't live with us anymore. She's living in a, in a flat somewhere. She had somehow heard on the, on the, on the stalk grapevine that this was happening. Dad, 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 what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Are you going to marry them? What's, what's the church going to think? How are you going to do this? What's going to happen? Yaddy, 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 yaddy. Darling, shut up. Just go away. I need to sleep. <laughs> so I got all her off the phone for 15 minutes. <clears throat> after 15 minutes, got uh, into bed after 12 o'clock again. I got up the next morning, looked at the notes Helen had prepared, got some sort of message together, did the rest of Friday, did the rest of Saturday, uh, and um, the Sunday service went all right. The staff looked after Sunday evening, and on Sunday afternoon, we met our prospective in-laws for the first time, and we started to plan a wedding ceremony and in six weeks later I got a brand new lovely uh, grand uh, daughter-in-law and seven months after that our first precious grandchild was born 
And I'm delighted to say that 16 years later, they just sent me a photo yesterday. They just had their 16th wedding anniversary and uh, they look very happy and they're in church each week and they've now got three boys and they're also in Sunday school. See, Helen and I are now grandparents. But the grandparenting process can come like a stalk in the night. But we've now got 10 grandchildren and we feel very, very blessed. They should be coming up on the screen. There they are just recently. Uh, delighted that a couple of them were in church with me this morning. But when I started to become a grandparent and when this was happening, people started to tell me grandpa jokes. And one of the best ones I heard was a little girl who came up to her grandfather and said, Grandpa, can you make a sound like a frog? And he said, yes, darling, I, I can make a sound like a frog, but, but why? Well, she said, because I heard Mummy telling Daddy that we can go to Disneyland when Grandpa croaks. Well, <clears throat> it's a privilege and a joy to be a grandparent. It's a challenge, but it is a great joy. And the Bible says that children's children are a crown to the aged. And so my first response to that scripture is to thank God that he has allowed me to live three score years and ten, <clears throat> and to thank God that I now have ten grandchildren. Uh, but the challenges are... <clears throat> and this is what makes it more complex, is that sometimes we don't get to see our grandchildren. Uh, I've got seven of them that live down in Sydney and Wollongong, so I don't get to see them as much. I do have three that live in Balmoral, and I get to see them quite a bit, and that is a great joy. So sometimes we see them, and sometimes we don't. And sometimes, if you, as you know, we don't have the control over them, but we did when they were younger. You know, we can't tell them this, that and the other. That's their parents' job. We can have influence, but we don't have control. So, so what is something simple that we can do to be grandparents and particularly godly grandparents? And what can the Bible tell us about it? You see, the thing is, when you come to the Bible, uh, there's not all that much about grandparents specifically as grandparents. <clears throat> there's a little bit... But there's not all that much. And today I just want to introduce you to two little stories, one of a grandpa and one of a grandma, and we can get some principle, I think, that will be of use and blessing to us. I hope we will. Now, in the Bible, there is a big theme to the whole Bible. I don't know whether you know this, but there is one great big theme to the Bible. And it's a, it's a theme about God who makes promises and God who keeps promises. And that, pro that theme goes right through the Bible from the start to the finish. Of course, the major way in which it comes forward is the promise of God fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. But right throughout, it's an integrating thread. And in, in Genesis, it happens right at the very start of the Bible where God appears to a wandering, stateless, landless Iraqi nomad and he says, I'm making you promises. He said, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a name. I'm going to make you, give you a son. I'm, I'm going to give you a, a lineage. And he says, and by you, Abram, whose name is changed to Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And the rest of Genesis is how God works that promise out. 
He works it out through Abraham's son, Isaac, and Isaac's son, Jacob, and Jacob's son, Joseph, and Joseph's sons, who are Manasseh and Ephraim. And that's what the rest of Genesis is all about, that promise being repeated and worked out in their lives. Now, you all remember Joseph. Joseph is the man who has the famous multicolored coat, who gets sold as a slave into Egypt, who gets thrown into prison in Egypt, who, because he can interpret dreams, interprets Pharaoh's dreams, he gets taken out of a prison, he gets to be basically prime minister of Egypt, he becomes Pharaoh's right-hand man, and he's put in charge of grain and agriculture in, in Egypt. And Pharaoh blesses him, and Pharaoh honours him, and Pharaoh gives him a, a, a wife, and he gives her him an Egyptian wife, and her name is Asenath. And she is an aristocratic lady. Her father is a priest. He is the priest of On, so it's a big deal. And she bears him these two children, Manasseh, who is the oldest, and Ephraim, who is the, who is the second. Now, finally, what happens is that Jacob, elderly Jacob, finds out that Joseph is in Egypt. He didn't know where he was. He'd been kidnapped and stolen. And Jacob, as an old man, comes down to Egypt to live the last years of his life out in the prosperity of Egypt in the company of his son Joseph. And finally, many years later, when Jacob is old and sick and weak and his eyes are failing, he knows he's going to die, he summons Joseph. And Joseph brings his sons to see Grandpa at the very, very end. Now, that part of the story resonated with me because I didn't know my grandfather. Uh, I didn't know my grandparents except for one of them. I knew my mother's father, Grandpa Reardon. I knew him just a little bit, but not much at all. I've got very few memories of him. But what I do remember was when I was about eight, myself and a number of the cousins were shepherded in by our parents to sit around Grandpa's bed as he lay dying and to say our last goodbye to Grandpa. And basically, that's what Jacob does. He summons Joseph, and Joseph brings the boys. And when he does, Jacob remembers the promises of God. Remember I said that Genesis is all about working out the promises? And Jacob remembers the promises. He says, God blessed me. God met me. God gave me a family. God repeated his promises to me that he was going to make through me a nation and a name and a heritage and a land. And then he does something that's very strange. He claims Joseph's sons. He says, these boys that I've got here, these boys you brought, I'm counting them as my boys. Any other boys and girls you have, they can be yours. But for the purposes of the promises of God, I am claiming these boys particularly. And then he looks at Joseph, and I think the Bible doesn't explain why, exactly why he does this, but I suspect he looks at Joseph and he remembers Joseph's mother because Jacob had a couple of wives, and if you will remember, he, had, he, he just loved Rachel. Rachel was the one who touched his heart. You know, Rachel was the woman who just was boom, boom, boom for him, and he went to her, uh, to her father and said, I will work seven years for you. And when he'd worked his seven years, his tricky father-in-law gave him the ugly older sister and he had, to have to, he had both of them. And he had to work another seven years for Rachel. But Joseph is the product of that union. 
And I think he sees Joseph, his mind wanders off a little bit, and he says, yeah, I remember Rachel. She was the love of my life. Tragically, she has died, and I buried her on the way to Jerusalem. And, and Joseph now, the, daughter, the son of Rachel, <coughs> brings his boys up. And Jacob takes the boys on his knees. He's old, he's sick, he's weak, he's blind, he can hardly see. And he takes them and he caresses them. Uh, Joseph gets them back off the, the, off the knees so he can put the blessing on them. And Joseph pushes forward the elder boy, brings the elder boy up near the right hand of Jacob, brings it up because the elder boy gets the blessing. And the younger boy, he might get a sort of a secondary blessing, but he doesn't get the primary blessing. But what Jacob, Joseph actually, Jacob does, is he crosses his hands. He crosses his hands, and so the blessing, the major blessing goes on the second child, and the minor blessing goes on the first child. Now, this is a rather famous scene, and the great painter Rembrandt made a picture of it. And it should come up on the screen there. Now, the interesting thing is Rembrandt lived in, in Holland and he lived in the 17th century. So what you see is not what went on 3,500-odd years ago. What you're, that, that's, that's a 17th century painter's understanding of it because they're all dressed up in Dutch 17th century clothes. And you can see the wife, Asenath. She's looking down on the boys and she's saying, they're my boys, okay? You can see Joseph. He's, he's looking over. And you can see Jacob, and you can see how Jacob is crossing his hand over. He's pushing his hand, he's missing one boy, and he's putting his hand on the other boy. Now, he delivers this blessing, uh, and it's not a magic formula, but it's a personal prayer that God, who makes promises and keeps promises, will transmit his promises through these boys. May the God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked faithfully, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and by the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. May they increase greatly on the earth. You see, this is about the past. It's about the present and it's about the future. Jacob looks back to his ancestors. He looks back to his grandfather, Abraham. He looks back to his father, Isaac. He looks back to the promise from his spiritual roots. But secondly, he looks to the present. Jacob says, it's not just about dad and grandpa. It's about me. The, the living God is my God. He is my shepherd. He is my guide. He is the one I worship. He is the one who has redeemed me from evil. You see, he takes on the blessings and the promises of God for himself. He just doesn't trade upon his religious heritage. He said, God must be there for me, and he is there for me. And there is a very famous saying that God has no grandchildren. And it just simply means that each and every one of us, whatever our historical situation no matter how great our parents and grandparents might have been in the Lord, and that's very, very important for this message, it still must be that each and every one of us must know God in Christ for ourselves. And the Bible says that in the start of John's Gospel, uh, when John is talking about Jesus in chapter 1 of his Gospel, he says these things, talking about Jesus, and to all who received him, that's Jesus, 
to those who believed on his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Children born not of natural descent, not of a human decision, not of a father's will, but born of God. Each and every one of us must know the living God through Jesus Christ for ourselves. And Jacob, he prays. He now prays this blessing on these boys. Lord, bless these boys. May they stand in my name. May they be in my line. May they be in my dynasty. May they become a nation and a dynasty and a lineage. Now, Joseph, he likes all this, but he stands up and says, But Dad, Dad, no, you got the wrong boy. Yeah, you, you, got, you put your major blessing on the second boy, not the first. And Jacob, now this is a very free translation of the Hebrew, but it probably is the best message I can give today. Jacob sort of says, Grandpa knows best. That's the one I want to say to you today. Grandpa knows best. He says, no, no, Manasseh, he is going to be great. He is going to have blessing through him. But the major blessing and the major greatness is going to come through the second boy. Now, you see, for us today, we are not ancient Hebrews living in Palestine or living in Egypt. We don't get the pledge to inherit the promised land like Jacob did. But each one of us can engage with those promises. We do worship the same God. We worship the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's just that he has revealed himself in all his glory in the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, we can be inheritors of the same blessing. Because you remember the blessing to Abraham? All the families of the world will be blessed through you. And if you are sitting here this morning and you love the Lord Jesus you can claim that promise that runs right throughout Genesis and right throughout the Bible. That can be true for you. And what I want to ask of every parent and every grandparent here, what I want you to do is for you to be a blessing to your children and to your grandchildren and particularly to pray down the line, generation after generation, that the promises of God and the love of Jesus will work in their lives and in their hearts. Hardly a day goes by that Helen and I do not pray for our adult children and their family because I think uh, nothing will help them more than having them have a, a, a stable, loving, godly Christian family home that will be an engine room of faith for the next generation. And pretty much every day we pray for that and if I ever go to bed at night and I'm really tired and I just want to skip it, Helen will be grabbing me and saying, Rod, Rod, we've got to pray. We've got to pray. So thank you, darling. Uh, and we pray for our grandchildren. We pray for them from the womb. From the day my daughter or my daughters-in-law tell us that they are going to have a baby, we are praying for that child in the womb. We're praying that that child grows up strong and healthy, but also loving God. We pray for that child's wife or husband-to-be, and we pray for the grandchildren that we're going to get out of that child. And we, so we're praying for it actually down the line. We want to leave a sort of an imprint of our sojourn here, a spiritual imprint, a legacy that we have been here that we, want to, we just want to go on and on and on down the line. See, when I reflected on my own home, I wasn't brought up in a specifically Christian home. My parents were decent people. They had been influenced by Christian values, but mum hardly ever went to church 
and dad never did. And so when Helen and I got married and we sort of got an idea about this sort of concept about 45 years ago, we sort of said, it can start with us. We can start a dynasty. We might, I mightn't have had a dynasty, but we can actually start a dynasty. We can pray for our children as they came. And we can pray for their children and for their great-grandchildren. And so we have been praying for that. Uh, now, the interesting thing was that that was 45 years ago and we've been praying all that time. But now with Ancestry.com, I've learned a little bit more about my ancestors than I ever did. And I actually found that I do come from a dynasty of faith for which I praise God. Uh, that should come up on the screen there. But as far as I can go back, there is a man called James Irvine from Northern Ireland. And I actually have a newspaper clipping at home talking about how James Irvine became a Christian, how he actually gave his life to Jesus. It was published in a, in a Northern Ireland newspaper 150-odd years ago. His son was Francis Irvine. Francis definitely was a godly man. Uh, he came out here. He married uh, my great-grandmother. Uh, she was a woman who started a Sunday school in Warwick. I've got records of, uh, of him, uh, of Francis being in prayer meetings. He became the first treasurer of Nunda Baptist Church. His son, my grandfather, Charles. Uh, my dad, who, as I said, never went to church, used to tell me I had a very religious, he had a very religious father who was always lay preaching and reading the Bible and trying to get him to go to church. And then there was myself, and I became a Christian at 25, Helen and I at the, the very same time. And then we have four, four, uh, four sons and a daughter, and we're trying to transmit the faith. I'm grateful that my uh, second son, David, is here today. And he became, I remember him telling me when he was four years old that he, he, he was Jesus' boy. Uh, he was quite a little evangelist because uh, he told his elder brother at the same time, who was six years old, that he would go to hell if he didn't believe in Jesus. <laughs> now, I don't quite know where he got that from. Um, you know, we weren't hellfire and brimstone parents. Maybe he picked it up at Sunday school or something. But I'm delighted too that a couple of my grandchildren were in church this morning and, the, and David has two little boys and they are being brought up in the Christian faith, uh, Pentecostals, I must say, but, you know, happy they're in church. Uh, had them here one day in the, in the service uh, and they're raising their hands to the hymns, the only kids that are doing it. My son said, look, you can see the petty kids, can't you? But I am just delighted that they are being brought up in this engine room of faith. And I'm equally delighted that I married a woman who loves Jesus. And as I said, we became Christians together as newlyweds. And when we looked at her background, we found that she also comes from a dynasty of faith. Um, and looking there at Elizabeth Ford, as far as we know, she was a godly woman. Certainly, Estella Proctor was, was a godly woman. There is no doubt about that. I knew Annie Kleindienst. I met her um, before she died, and she was a lovely Christian lady married to a Methodist minister. Uh, Helen's mum, Joyce East, is also has a, has a deep, quiet faith in Christ. Helen has been very, very keen to love the Lord and to transmit her faith down to our daughter, Carolyn, who uh, became a Christian in her teens and is a, a very strong Christian who's worked as an evangelist. And now Carolyn is transmitting her faith down to her daughters, Bridget and Carolyn, who again are just being brought up in this cradle of faith 
in a Christian home. Uh, they've got a lovely little boy as well called Johnny. And so the dynasty goes on and we're praying that it does go on. And if you're a grandma here today, we've talked about grandpas, you might like to take encouragement from Grandma Lois. Now, Grandma Lois is an interesting lady. She is in the Bible. See, when the Apostle Paul was on his missionary journeys, he saw one time a young, dynamic young bloke who he thought would be a great ministry trainee. That guy's name was Timothy. He saw some potential in him, and he wanted to get him, and he wanted to train him. But what about the heritage of Timothy? What does it say about the women that were in his life? Well, this is what it says in 2 Timothy 1.5. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which lived first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am now persuaded lives in you. See, Timothy's dad was a Greek, and as far as we know, he was not a Christian. And we don't know exactly how Lois and Eunice became Christians, but what we do know was the love for Jesus burnt in their hearts, and they transmitted it. To their, to their grandson Timothy and he was blessed by them and I just love I, I discovered uh, as I was preparing this message a lovely quote from the 16th century French commentator John Calvin and he said about Timothy in one of his writings that Timothy was read in his infancy in such a way that he could suck the godliness with his mother's milk don't you love that phrase he could suck the godliness with his mother's milk. Do you know how they did it? Well, Paul tells us how they did it. Paul, a little bit later on in the letter, says that Timothy learnt from his infancy the scriptures. These women taught Timothy the scriptures. They laid open the Bible to him. They read him the Bible ever since he was a tiny little boy. And you can see, can't you, how we have been blessed by Grandma Lois. You see, she has that deep faith in Christ. Passes on to a daughter, passes on to Timothy. Paul sees this potential in Timothy, decides to make him a ministry trainee, and then to help him, writes two letters in the Bible first letter of Timothy, second letter of Timothy. So, 2,000 years later, because of that woman's faith, she now has a global influence because we read these letters in the Bible all because she was a woman who loved Jesus. And she passed it on. And I think it's an absolutely awesome thing that when we think of our children and our grandchildren as little kids and they're racing around the house and they're driving us nuts and they're breaking the furniture and they're herring round at kiddling, that, that they could become, some of those kids, such great men and women of God and influenced by our love and our modelling and our prayers that our influence could be felt in 2,000 years ago, years time, a ripple effect through the fabric of time. <clears throat> and you might be here saying, look, I don't have any sort of Christian heritage. I don't have Christian parents. I don't, uh, I'm the first Christian in my family. Uh, I, you know, my parents were actually hostile to God. Or I might have come out of a different faith tradition all, altogether. Well, that doesn't matter. <clears throat> as far as I was concerned, when I was starting off, Helen and I were starting from scratch, and so can you. I believe that you can be, if you are the very first believer in your family, I'm hoping that you can pray that the dynasty of faith starts with you right here and right now. 
I'm just hoping that you will order your life and your influence and you will pray for your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren that they will know and love the Lord, that they will grow up in wisdom and in stature and that they will know God and they will grow socially and morally. They will marry a godly life's partner, they will have godly children and they will pass the faith down the line. You see, this might be the most important thing you ever do. It might be in Winston Churchill's phrase, your finest hour, praying for a legacy, praying for a dynasty, praying for a heritage that transcends your life and ripples down through eternity. You see, there is a ton of material in this book about the life of Jacob. There's a lot of material in Genesis about him. But when the New Testament wants to sum up the important moment about the life of Jacob, it doesn't talk about his tricky dealings with Esau. It doesn't talk about his love affair with Rachel. It doesn't talk about his father ripping him off with Leah. It doesn't talk about him ascending the the dream with the ladder to heaven. It doesn't talk about him uh, wrestling with the angel. What does it say? This is what the New Testament in the book of Hebrews, says about Jacob, who's basically recorded in the Old Testament. It says this, By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leant on the top of his staff. See, this is the summary statement of Jacob's life. And why by faith? Why does it say by faith? Because you see, Jacob couldn't see in the future how the promises were going to work out. What Jacob was do, did was he trusted in the promises of God. He trusted in God who makes promises and will work promises out as sure as night follows day. Uh, this, could, this was the defining moment of Jacob's life, and it could be so with you. You may win the Nobel Prize. You may score the winning try at the state of origin. You may sing your heart out at the voice. You might become a captain of industry. You might become the Australian of the year. But in the annals of God, in the economy of God, the most important thing that you ever do in your entire life will be that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul and with all your strength and love your neighbour as yourself and that you pass down the blessing one generation after another generation. In the Bible, there are many, many times when God's people are under the hammer. But God always holds out hope for the future. And there was such a time in the, in the life of, a, of the prophet Isaiah, and Isaiah restrengthens his people by calling them back to repentance and faith and loving and worshipping the living God. And Isaiah gives the people this promise. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is with you, will not depart with you. And my words that I have put in your mouth will always be on your lips and on the lips of your children and on the lips of their descendants from this time forward and forever. Now you see, this promise was given a few thousand years ago in another time and another place. But as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe we can claim this promise today. And what a delicious promise it is. God's spirit with us. God's word nourishing us and our family and their families. And so on and so on down the line. You see, the baton of faith will be passed on. The torch of faith 
will not go out. Now that Bible that was went round the room, could somebody wave it at me? I hope it's still here. Where is it? If it's there somewhere, let me have it back there. Thank you. I'd love to have it back at the end of the service. But what that is meant to do is to symbolize the word of God, the faith in Christ, as it passed from each one of you to the next. That is symbolizing, and I hope everybody touched it, the promises of God going down from one generation to the next generation to the next. See, I cannot command it of God, but I can plead. I can implore, I can desire of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ that these promises will be true for me and for my children and for their children and down the line and for you and for your children and your descendants. And you can pray that too. And I absolutely hope with all my heart that you do. Let me pray for you now. (coughs) Heavenly Father... We thank you so much that you are a God who holds out hope, who gives promises, who keeps your word, and who works your promises out. And and Lord, I just pray for everybody here that out of the, the families that are here, whether they're parents, whether they're grandparents, whatever they are, that you will be creating this day dynasties of faith that will take on the love and the word of the Lord Jesus Christ from one generation to the next. May they be godly Christians coming out of what we do here. May they be missionaries coming out. Maybe be, maybe pastors. Maybe may they be people who are in in Parliament standing up for Christ. But Lord, we just pray that a hundred, two hundred, three hundred years, there'll be people that come out of fig tree, out out of this spiritual dynamic that say, I love and serve the Lord Jesus. And I just pray that for everybody here today as I pray it for myself. In Jesus' name, amen.